Last week, we discussed Nehemiah building the wall, rebuilding the wall, and the many things they went through to do that. It was fascinating. The Jews made it through mocking, threats, fatigue, criticism. And today it all comes to a grinding halt. And you go, what, what would have made these people stop? The work. Well, in one word, division. Division among God's people. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he knows that if he can divide God's people, the work stops. And that's true in churches, and that's true in ministries, and that's true in friendships as well. There's an old quote you may have heard before. I think it's applicable. It's this. To live above with saints we love, ah, that will be glory. To live below with saints we know, well, that's a different story. Well, the division that's taking place today is from financial woes, debt as a result of high taxes, exorbitant interest rates, famine, yet worst of all, they're just not keeping God's word. They're practicing something called usury, which is these incredible interest rates they've put up on people. And they're also selling Jews to the Gentiles. Ultimately, what we're seeing is the people are violating God's law. They're violating God's justice. And that's what we're going to see is biblical justice today. Uh, it's defined in two ways in Scripture, and they're very, very similar um, the first way to define justice is to do right or to make right. We see in Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Another way to define justice would be to give back to the afflicted what has been lost. Thinking of most likely widows, orphans, strangers. These were people who were routinely robbed and mistreated. And Isaiah 117 tells us, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And what I want you to see is that ultimately in this chapter, in this sermon today, Nehemiah is practicing biblical justice. And as he does so, he's practicing righteousness, which are very similar in scripture. That's why many times they're used in place of each other. Old Testament scholar Dr. Bruce Walkey put it this way, righteousness is disadvantaging oneself in order to advantage others. Unrighteousness is disadvantaging others in order to advantage oneself. And we're going to see that today in how Nehemiah handles justice biblically. An outline for you in chapter 5, verse 1 through 5 is the great outcry. Verse 6 through 10 is the confrontation In verse 11 through 13 are the action steps. You'll see that on your uh, notes. You could, the QR code, and you pull that up. Let's take a look now at chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. And as I begin reading, um, I studied this in the New American Standard, so it's a little bit different from from those folks that are using normally our ESV. I like them both, but this week I chose to read it out of the New American Standard. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, we, our sons and our daughters are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. 
There were others who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses that we might get grain because of the famine. Also, there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax in our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is like the flesh of our brothers, our children like their children. Yet behold, we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters are forced into bondage already. We are helpless. Uh, literally in the Hebrew, he says, they're, they, they're saying there are, there's no power in our hands. We have no power because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So we have this great outcry. That term outcry is the same term used to describe Israelites crying out under Egyptian bondage in Exodus 3. But you should note who they're crying out to in this section. They're crying out to uh, Nehemiah because of the Jewish brethren. Their own brothers are mistreating them. We should remember in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 22, Nehemiah asked the workers to stay in Jerusalem, those that are in places like Jericho and other places, to stay there and not go back to the towns until the wall was built. Well, that extra work on the wall has um, affected the harvest and the income that those families have normally had. You have one less worker, or in some cases, more than that. So these Jewish brothers are, well... They're taking advantage of them. These Jewish brothers are the nobles, the, the affluent. Really, Nehemiah is in the same class as the men that are uh, hurting these poor people. So we've got three Jewish groups, and we're going to see their financial problems here. The first group are those who own no, no land. They have no money, and they're hungry. A second group is the landowners who have put up a security against their loan, Y'all, they have mortgaged their fields, their vineyards, their houses, and what do they do? And then we have a third group, the landowners who have borrowed money to pay taxes and accrue tremendous amount of debt. We've got big problems here. Now, just historically, I'll tell you this, the Babylonians, they would tax real estate and crops, and the Persian Empire increased those taxes, like the Persians were great about, hey, if y'all want to go back home to your country, you go. That's great. But we're going to tax you, okay? There's a downside to this. Um, but it's interesting. The people are not angry with Nehemiah, but they're angry with the rich in particular because these rich are, um, well, they're criminal in what they're doing. And all three of them seem to be dealing with this. Their children are starting to go into slavery, now, they had to do that in order to be able to survive. Now, the question is, is um, if you got to choose, do you choose to sell your field or sell your kids? And some of you say, well, my child's a teenager, so I maybe go with the latter. Well, amen. amen. There you go. Harsh as this may seem, as one of the commentators says it, this is important to note. Harsh as this may seem, they would... Uh, then still, change that. What he's trying to say is this, you sell your kids. Why would you sell your kids? Because you can buy your kids back if you have land. But if you lose your land, then you're going straight to poverty and you're gonna have to sell your kids anyway. It's terrible. Uh, keep in mind though, Old Testament law did allow you to sell yourself into slavery to a fellow Israelite due to debt. 
How long could you stay a slave? Do you remember how many years? You actually stay six years. Some of y'all get a bonus year. Is that the way it works? Uh, the seventh year, you'd be, you could go free. So there was, the seventh year was the sabbatical year, and you could go free and you would be out of debt. And the Lord provided for the nation of Israel in that fashion. Yet, listen to me. This slavery is different. Why? They're selling their kids to Gentiles. They have no understanding of a sabbatical year. It's perpetual slavery. And and there's one other thing that's taking place here, and it's this Hebrew word, nikboshet, or nikboshot, rather. It's what's happening here is it says in the ESV that they're enslaving our daughters. I like the way it says it better in the New American Standard that they are forcing our daughters. You see, the way it works is this, this Hebrew word, nikboshot, they're forcibly taking the daughters instead of the fields. Why would they do that? Well, you could guess, but suffice it to say that in Ezra, or rather in Esther chapter seven, you've got a situation of, you remember the story, Ahasuerus has just found out that Haman has sold the Jews, if you will, into extinction. And at this point, he finds out that that, The king of Hasuerus finds out that that little document he signed is going to affect his wife, who's now, he doesn't know, he just found out, is Jewish. And so Hasuerus is so upset, he goes to the palace garden, and he comes back. And you remember what is happening when he comes back? Haman is pleading for his life, and Haman falls on the very couch that Esther is reclining upon, begging for his life. And Hasuerus says this, Will he assault the queen as I am in the house? Will he nik bashot? It's that same word, enslave or forcing and assault. It's the same Hebrew term. So what is it saying? It's saying that they are bringing these girls in for their own um, immorality. They're gratifying the lust of these creditors. It's sick. So I want you to be angry when you hear this because you should be. And you know who else is angry? Not only God, but Nehemiah. Take a look, verse six and seven. Then I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, and I took counsel or I consulted with myself and contended with the nobles and the rulers and said to them, you are exacting usury, um, which I'll explain in a moment, each from his brother, Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. We see three actions that Nehemiah takes. And really, I think it is a pattern for us. Um, The first thing is he does, I know you think this would be shocking to ever hear from a pulpit, but some of us really need to hear this. You should be angry more often. As a matter of fact, I'll go further. You should be very angry. (laughs) What? Did I hear that correctly? Well, stay with me. The Hebrew word is chirah. It means to burn, to be kindled with anger. Why? Because of what these people are doing. They are presently breaking the law. I like what one of the commentators, Derek Thomas, says it. He says, the exploitation of the poor angers him and he shows it. It is a sickly Christianity that insists that the initial reaction to every circumstance is acquiescent forgiveness. He's making a point that the first thing we don't, 
that we shouldn't do is, oh, I forgive you. No, there's a point of anger that needs to take place here. And, And by the way, if you're looking for other options of this, we certainly see Paul's interaction with Peter in Galatians 2, where Peter is, he at first was eating this really good, I don't know, bacon, ham, with other Gentiles, but then the Judaizers come and he's, he, what he's been eating with the Gentiles and all of a sudden he pulls back. He won't eat with them anymore because the Judaizers are legalists. And even Barnabas was led astray. And it's interesting what it says in Galatians 2.11. Paul said, he stood condemned and so I opposed him to his face. At this point, some of you are saying, well, he should have spoken to him in private. No, he shouldn't have because this was a public sin. Paul was angry about it because it looks like the gospel was being compromised. Jews and Gentiles are different peoples. No, in Christ, we are one in Christ. We also see Jesus. You can imagine him making that whip he's putting together calmly, quickly perhaps, and flipping over tables. The anger of the Lord, it came from his zeal for the Lord. What are we talking about in two words, Jeff? Righteous anger. And I will tell you this, it is a very misunderstood biblical concept, I believe. I'll never forget being at a um, Christian football game. I say it was a Christian football game because two Christian teams going against each other. And one of the dads got so angry at the ref. And I was coaching at the time and this guy's screaming at the ref. It wasn't the best call, perhaps, on the ref's part. And I pulled the dad aside and I said, hey, just, just settle, throttle it back a little bit. And he looks at me and he goes, that's righteous anger. <laughs> Some of us shouldn't laugh because we ourselves have fallen prey to that. Ephesians 4 is where we get this concept of righteous anger primarily from. Verse 26 and 27, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or I'll just read it. He tells them, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Uh, Greek terminology or grammatical terminology, those are imperatives. The Holy Spirit is telling you, not you can be angry. The Holy Spirit is telling you, be angry. You should be angry. Uh, Daniel Wallace, who's one of the premier Greek scholars of our day, he actually teaches at DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, and he says this, Christians are to exercise a righteous indignation over sin in the midst of the believing community. When other believers sin, such people should be gently and quickly confronted. For if the body of Christ does not address sin in its midst, the devil gains a foothold. Entirely opposite of quote-unquote, introspective conscience view, this text seems to be a shorthand expression for church discipline. There is a warrant for righteous indignation. So most of us perhaps have always considered Ephesians 4 as this sort of introspective conscience view that, hey, don't go to bed when you're angry. And, And that is true. I think that's wise. I think it's a great idea to not go to sleep while being angry with people, especially your spouse. Work that out. I agree with that. However, I think Wallace's view here is correct. He's commanding the church to be angry. Don't let the sin go down on your anger. Deal with the sin in its midst. Deal quickly with that particular sin. 
Why, why do we need to deal with it? Because it grows and it festers. Ecclesiastes 8.11 makes it very clear when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, what happens? The hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. Hey, why don't you try this, young parents? Stop disciplining one of your kids. Just give him ice cream cones for every little bad thing he does. Watch what the other kids will do pretty quick. And it works the same way in the church. When we don't lovingly, that's important, deal with sin, it's wrong. It's wrong. So, uh, and I think it's important to note, Nehemiah's anger is really a sign of his love and concern for them. Their actions are a disgrace on the people of God. Love always does what is best for the other person. Now, be clear that your view of what is best for the other person is in the Bible, not just your view. But yes, be angry. I'm going to nuance that in just a moment. Uh, number two, I, I took counsel with myself or I consulted with myself. Now, what is he ha- what's happening here? Is he only talking to himself? No, I think he prayed about it. It doesn't say that in the text, but we see that in his lifestyle. He certainly did. So why is he taking counsel or why is he consulting with himself? I think it's because he knew anger is a dangerous emotion, is it not? So even as I tell you to be angry, I'm also telling you, be careful. It can quickly become a sin. What started out as righteous anger can quickly become unrighteous. Proverbs 16.32 says, he who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. So there are times that we need to, I need a few minutes here. Pull back, pray, think about this. Am I just being angry because this is just making me look bad? Or is this biblical? What does the Bible say about this? I loved what Juan Hernandez said last week, and I could kick myself for not saying it more often. We should preach the gospel to ourselves, constantly reminding ourselves we are wicked people. We are prone to wander. And yet at the same time, we are now righteous in God's sight. We are simultaneously sinners and saints. And the Lord loves us so much, so we can, we can push forward, all right? There's so much we've got to learn from that. So he consults with himself. And number three, he, he brought charges against the nobles and rulers, or he contended with them. He deals with sin. He goes straight to the person. Don't you love it? Uh, well, maybe you don't. But too often times when we've got an issue with a person, what do we do? We go around the person and talk to others. And he goes straight to the person. Now, I, I need to caveat that. Matthew 7 says to be very clear when we do... Uh, judge, let's watch for the, what, this telephone pole in our eye, um, this log in our eye. Be careful of that. Make sure we're not judging hypocritically. Uh, Number two, I would say make sure it's sin and not conviction. Please. Sometimes we are just drawn to fighting. And so let's make sure this is in scripture. We're dealing with this righteously and, and lovingly. And then I would also say Proverbs 19.11 says, it is to a man's glory to do what? Overlook an offense. Sometimes we just go, hey, I don't need to deal with this thing. Is that Nehemiah's issue now? No, he has to deal with this. Why? Because it's not about himself. It's about the people that he loves. And he wants for them to have biblical justice. 
So he tells them, you are exacting usury each from his brother. That's not a term we use that often, but I'll tell you what it means. It means charging excessive interest on loans. You're charging, some of these loans, they could charge 60 to 75% interest. That's insane. You can't pay that back. And couple that with, remember, in Israel, can you charge interest to fellow Israelites? No, you cannot. Exodus twenty two twenty five. if you lend money to any of my people, the Lord says, with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender who, to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. Why? Because you're profiting off of his misfortune. Also added to that, Deuteronomy 24.10, when you make a loan to your neighbor, do not collect a pledge as collateral. And notice what they're doing. They're seizing their fields, their vineyards, their homes, even their kids. Why is God laying these rules down for his people? Because in the Old Testament, he regarded all the Israelites as brothers. And you know what? They were. They were. In the New Testament, all the church is regarded as brothers. Why? Because we are. We all have the same father. We all have the same older brother in Jesus Christ. We all have the same comforter in the Holy Spirit. Y'all may not like it, but we're kin. <laughs> now, I'd say this. This doesn't set well with many Americans or Texans for that matter. But to be clear... I am not the church. We are the church. It's the body. Leviticus 26.12 says, I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. We are bound together underneath the new covenant. So remember, we're one in Christ. Therefore, I held a great assembly against them. Now, why does he do this? Well, perhaps because they were not repenting of the sin or maybe because public sin you have to deal with publicly. You see this in 1 Corinthians 5. You see Paul and Peter, uh, and he's gonna go public with it. Verse eight, and I said to them, we, according to our ability, have redeemed our Jewish brothers who were sold to the nations. Now, would you even sell your brothers that they might be sold to us? Then they were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah tells them, ultimately, I just bought these folks back from slavery and now y'all are enslaving them again for us to buy back? So the first thing they're doing wrong, just to be very clear, they're selling to the nations. It means Jews are selling fellow Jews to Gentiles. This was never allowed in Old Testament law. You can't do that. So he's bringing biblical justice down on them. Verse nine, again, I said, the thing which you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? What's their problem in three little words? They lack fear of God. That is a whole sermon we're saving for next week. But that's their issue. Verse 10, and likewise, I, my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Please let us leave off this usury. Once again, usury, it's a good word. It's, it's interest rates that y'all are charging them. You could always charge interest to foreigners, to be clear, but you couldn't do it to your brothers in Israel. That's the way it worked. 
So what does he call for? Verse 11, please give back to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the grain, the new wine and the oil that you are exacting from them. Now, I think it's interesting. He doesn't mention give back their kids, but maybe because they would actually have to, Nehemiah would have to pay for that. But I think it's implied that this is what would be happening as well. That term hundredth part is worth mentioning. Hundredth part, it just means interest. It's, it's an idiom of an unspecified amount of interest. As I mentioned, interest rates could be 60 to 75%. What is he saying? No more charging interest. You're done. You're done. So ultimately, what is Nehemiah asking? I believe he's asking for all loans to be forgiven, give back the land, the children, everything. Part of the reason why, remember, the people could not repay their debts was because they were working on the Jerusalem wall. And we should note this, extraordinary situations call for extraordinary sacrifice. And one other aspect that I haven't mentioned, even though they're selling Jews to the nations, excessive interest, one third thing they're not doing is lined out in oh, Deuteronomy 24, 22. The wealthy are commanded to be generous to the poor. Why do they have to be generous to the poor? Well, the Bible tells you, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Be kind to your slave, your servant. Why? Because you were a slave. You were a servant. Well, there's good news coming, folks, because they respond well. Verse 12, then they said, we will give it back and we'll require nothing from them. We will do exactly as you say. So I called the priest and took an oath from them that they would do according to this promise. What do you have here? You've got repentance. When John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, when Jesus says the same thing, it's exactly what's happening here. They're not just remorseful. They'll say, we're going to fix this. And it's interesting, Nehemiah takes an oath from them. Uh, You've heard of the phrase, strike while the iron is hot. Some of you go, yeah, I like that. What's it mean? I don't know. Well, the way it works is when you would put metals into fire, you'd heat them up. As you heated them up, they become very malleable. They bend easily. And at that point, you can get a mallet on it before it cools and you strike the iron while it's hot. And that's what Nehemiah is doing. Oh, really? You're repentant? Okay, let's get an oath from you right now. Verse 13, I also shook out the front of my garment and said, thus may God shake out every man from his house and from his possessions who does not fulfill this promise. Even thus may he be shaken out and emptied. So what does this mean? This is a little bit cultural issue. The way it would work would be this. You would have, they would have these long garments, but they would have belts and they could store things in their front of their garment, just like this. They didn't have pockets. So the front of the garment was sort of a a, um, pocket of sorts. Uh, By pulling up your garment and shaking it out, you release the objects. And that's what Nehemiah is doing, is he's saying, really? And he's going to show them, and this is what you would do. You would say, really? Oh, well, okay. May God release you. So the way it works is, where did my phone go? Oh, behind me. Okay, sorry. 
I was watching you, one of your little kids. Is y'all steal my phone or something? <laughs> Point of it is, is, is this, is that God is, he's showing them symbolically that God would shake them out from his safekeeping if they did not keep their word. It's like God has you in the front of your garment, in front of his garment, and God will shake you out if you don't keep your word. It's a curse, ultimately. It's really the importance of godly business practice in the church cannot be emphasized enough. Men, women, if the gospel does not affect how you do business, are you born again? I mean, if it just doesn't affect how you raise your kids and be a good husband or wife and member here, but it doesn't affect your business? Wow. Please tell me that's not the case. It has to affect you because the gospel has hands and feet and the Holy Spirit changes you. So allow that to happen even today. You want to make sure that as one of, as it says in the New Testament, my yes is my yes. If you say yes, you'll do it. If you say no, you won't. And notice what happens. All the assembly says, amen, and they praise the Lord. Then the people did according to this promise. What have you just seen happen? You've seen biblical justice take place. Nehemiah calls them out. They repent. They now keep their word, and it restores unity to the body. By way of application, I'm going to say a few things about biblical justice. I think it's worth studying because... There's a lot of questions. Nehemiah, note this, is practicing biblical justice. And once again, to use these definitions as the template that I mentioned earlier, biblical justice is number one, to do right, to make right. And number two, to give back to the afflicted what has been lost. In particular, at Nehemiah's time, it's the widows, the orphans, the strangers, the landless. But it's important to note context. I beg of you, note context. These rich Jews had broken Old Testament law by practicing excessive interest and in selling their fellow Jews to the Gentiles. These same Jews are now repenting, giving back what they have taken from the poor, and they are all now worshiping the Lord in unity. Old Testament national Israel, please note, was a theocratic state and they did enforce biblical justice by the state for a particular people group only. It was for Israel. That's all it was for. And it was not to bring about economic equity, but for the sins that were committed. That was Old Testament Israel. And I want you to note this. Now that we live in New Testament times, you should note this. And these are good terms to know. They're twofold. One is continuity and one is discontinuity. And you know what they tell you whenever you're learning new terms, just shorten them back to their roots. Dis, discontinue and continue. Um, the way we are related to Israel, are we, the, are we the people of God today? You bet you we are. Yeah, but we're, I mean, we're Gentiles. I mean, my forebears were drinking blood in Ireland. I don't know about yours but we are now the people of God. So, so, so there's, there's discontinuity in some sense with Israel. We're not 
no longer a state. We're not one people. We're many peoples underneath the one people of God. So there's discontinuity, and yet there's also continuity. We are continuously the people of God, as Israel was the people of God. But in the New Testament church, it's different. We are a host of peoples from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And for us, biblical justice is not enforced by the state, but it is given freely, individually, as the Lord leads. And the church also practices biblical justice. Now, I will tell you this, justice, the term in the New Testament is rarely used. I think it's only used in Luke 18. Doesn't mean it's unimportant. You've got plenty of Old Testament passages that could uh, show you that, but it's different. Uh, certainly the, the definition is true, to do right, to make right, or to give back to the afflicted what has been lost. So at this point, you're looking at me, okay, so what do we do? I'm glad you asked. We are to be engaging in great commandment, great commission living. Great commandment, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving your neighbors yourself. Great commission, making disciples of all nations, giving the good news of Jesus Christ. To who? To those whose lives have been wrecked and afflicted by sin. Be they widows, orphans, strangers, poor, prisoners, ill-treated, disabled, sick, healthy, happily married, rich, all types, or whoever. That's what we do. Why do we do that? Well, we do that because we follow the Lord, who also practiced biblical justice. You know, he even wrote the book on it. I don't mean that by way of laughter, but it means that so many times we're not actually reading the book on justice. We're listening to other voices. To do right, to make right, to give back to the afflicted what has been lost. You see, in order to purchase an elect bride wrecked by sin and death, God's justice required a blood sacrifice. So he poured out his wrath upon his only begotten son. Jesus Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin for us. In this blood purchase of the spotless lamb of God, he gave us back all that we had lost in Eden. You see, it's interesting, a tree, a tree, the very instrument that by our own volition gave us the curse of sin and death is the very same instrument where Christ purchased our eternal lives. And we look forward to that day when we will be introduced to another tree, the tree of life. So if you are not in Christ today, that means you've never come to the place of really truly understanding, I am a sinner deserving of the wrath of God. If I were to die right now at this second, I would be going to hell for eternity. Why? God is merely paying you for your wages. He was giving your wages. Wages of sin is death. It's not just physical death because we all die, but it's eternal separation from God. And my encouragement to you today is just come before the Lord. <laughs> Beg his mercy. Lord, save me. Trusting him alone for any righteousness that you don't have, which just means you don't have any righteousness, but the Lord can give you all of his righteousness. Today, trust in him.